Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is John Markoff, one of the early personal computer journalists. He wrote back in the day for InfoWorld and Byte. Those were two that I read quite religiously in the day. I'm sure I read some of his stuff there. And in 1988, he made the big time. He became the Times, Times, that's a New York Times, national computer writer. You left there recently, what, like 2017, something like that? I did, at the beginning of 2017. Got it. And he continues to work as a freelance journalist for the Times and other organizations, and he's a volunteer at the Computer History Museum, very worthy institution. And he's an affiliated fellow of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. That would be a good thing if we were actually able to achieve that now, wouldn't it? (laughs) Still an open question. Indeed. I actually do a little work in the AI area and consult with some uh, leading AI projects. I have lots of AI thinkers on my podcast, so it's a concern of mine as well. But today, we're going to talk about a book that John wrote called Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, a very, very, very interesting and in-depth biography of Stuart Brand, who uh, appeared in more places than I knew at important inflection points in the history of our epoch. And the book was published in March 2022. And I can say I can highly recommend it. As I was telling John in the pregame, I usually read the books fairly slowly and try to finish three days prior to my podcast, so it's all fresh in my mind. So I, following my usual model, I started about three weeks ago, and I just zipped right through it because it was just a damn interesting. I think it took me four days, maybe something like that, to read it. So if you find what we're talking about today interesting, check it out. Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand. So welcome, John. Welcome to the Jim Rutt Show. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Really good to chat with you, and it's just a fun topic. Uh, I'm going to start off with something that you reference in the book, the altogether too common meme about Stuart Brand as the zelig of our epoch. I did a Google search, and unfortunately, it turns up 3,600 times on Google. So that goddamn meme has spread. And I think it's amazingly unfair to a guy who is a hell of a lot more than somebody who just showed up. Absolutely. You know, I'm shocked to hear that the number is 3,600. I may actually have been the first person to use it, although I'm not sure if that's true. And I hope that's not true. I referred to him as a zelig in an earlier book I wrote called What the Dormouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. And I've come to think of that uh, term as being unfair. Um, And because, in particular, because zeligs are shapeshifters. And what I realized that there was a there was a through line in Stewart's life, and so for that uh, reason alone, I wouldn't think of him as a zealot. Yeah, I think of a zealot as the person who just happened to be there, right, and got his picture in the history books by just happening to be there. And you know, especially reading the book, well, you know, I knew a fair bit about Stewart. I've met him a couple of times over the years. He probably knows who I am. I know who he is, but our relationship's no stronger than that. But I've always thought of him as, and the book confirmed it. 
as a person who is a deep thinker, though not necessarily a systematic one. You know, he has these interesting deep thoughts, but they aren't necessarily part of a broader system and fully up to changing his mind, which he's done plenty of times. And this book really enforced this, I would call the sub-theme, is that he is seemed to be an almost magical small e entrepreneur. You know, an entrepreneur in the sense not of starting companies, raising venture capital and, you know, all that shit, but rounding up friends all the way back to his teenage and younger years to do something, right? He seemed to have that innate ability to round up some people, motivate them and call the play. And again and again and again at every kind of level from two people or three people going on a cross-country camping trip to putting together amazing cultural events like the Trips Festival to, you know, again and again and again. He was that small E entrepreneur, that missing ingredient that without it, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I, you know, that it's interesting to use the term entrepreneur. I, I guess it's the correct term, but, you know, there was really only one for-profit enterprise that Stewart's been involved in. That was, uh, he was one of the founding members of the Global Business Network, um, but he was a fellow traveler there. Most of his stuff has been about ideas. Um, and occasionally, he's been an activist, although he's kind of conflicted about activism. Um, but over and over again, he has these whims or ideas that he follows, and um, and he starts over. Uh, you know, I guess he's super curious person, and he follows his instincts. He's done that um, since he was a kid. Yep. But a lot of people do that. There are lots of intellectual flaneurs in the world. This is actually a direct quote from you. Throughout his life, Brand has taken pride in creating new institutions. And again, as an entrepreneur myself, an advisor to entrepreneurs, et cetera, you know, again, it's not the for-profit model, but there were things started that had continuity that he was the indispensable catalyst that, he, that made it happen. And that's why I decided that the underlying theme here you know, John probably doesn't even know that, is small e entrepreneurship. I really like the term catalyst. I think that gets at it. Yep. Then, as you said, he has displayed an eerie knack for showing up first the onset of some social movement or technology inflection point. And then moving on, just when everybody else is catching up, he's retained a remarkable aversion to orthodoxy, which on occasion made him the target for criticisms from the right and sometimes the left. And again, that also came through that in my circle of folks, we call that edge seekers, people who are trying to orient towards where the edge is. And you, of course, because it is the edge, you don't necessarily know where it is, right? And so by some process or some intuition or some randomness, you kind of stumble towards the edge. And again, that was the theme that came back again and again and again, that he did seem to have, has, he's still kicking, last I knew, yeah, it was about 84 years old, going strong last time I talked to him. Yeah, he's working on a new book. That's right. Yeah, he always seemed to somehow smell the edge and, and move in that direction. And as I mentioned, again, my assessment is that he has had a few deep ideas. And in particular, I did not know until I read the book that he was the inventor of the pace layer model. Paul Sappho, I think he worked with him on it. And it does recapitulate some ideas, though not formed quite the same way, of Dyson, the physicist. But that's an, that's an interesting and important and pretty deep model. Maybe you could give us a quick pricey on that, if you recall. Well, so I think this came out of his work in in the uh, the world of architecture. You know, he one of the things he dived into, and what became the book that he's uh, most proud of uh, is this work he did on what he called the distinction between high road and low road architecture. He was interested in how buildings learn um, out of his time spent at the Media Lab, where he saw this pristine 
uh, corporate designed building that the new media lab went into, uh, which was a beautiful edifice, but it was a terrible place to work in. And then he learned about building 20, which was this, you know, this building that was so funky that it didn't even have a name, but people loved it and it could be repurposed. And out of thinking about uh, how architecture changed, he realized that there is a hierarchy of pace and various you know, layers of humanity going from you know, the very basic and physical all, all the way up to the cultural. And then I guess at the very top is fashion. And he articulated that in a number of sort of iterations. Ultimately, Paul Sappho helped him on, on some of that. But it's a good analytical tool, and he's used it in uh, some of his, his new work at the Long Now Foundation, uh, which is concerned with the pace of change. It's something he began with a computer scientist named Danny Hillis. It's an effective way to look at the world, I think. Yeah, and for listeners, the six layers are nature at the inner. It moves slowly at its own pace, evolutionary and geological time, and then culture. And then governance, you know, think of the U.S. Constitution, infrastructure, interstate highway system, railroads, and the internet, commerce, always moving, but again, at a pace of years. And then finally, he puts forth fashion, which is, especially now, internet influencers, fast fashion, TikTok, all that ridiculous horseshit. You know, it's moving so fast that we can't even keep up with it. So, you know, I, I found that to be a pretty important contribution, actually, to thinking about how the world works. And the other one, of course, the one for which he is quoted, but out of context, the very famous quote, on the one hand, information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable. The right information, the right place just changes your life. On the other hand, information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time. So you have these two fighting against each other. Now, as somebody who worked in the information industry for my whole career, basically, originally textbooks all the way to, you know, running the inner infrastructure of the Internet, you know, that just rings so true to me. But of course, he is quoted out of context. Information wants to be free, which does such a disservice to the thought. No, you're right. And I'm really pleased that you used the real quotation first rather than the meme that became the rallying cry of the dot-com era. And, you know, he was simply channeling one of his mentors, Gregory Bateson. Bateson, of course, had this notion of the double bind, double bind being, you know, the study of these diametrically opposed contradictions. Uh, the double bind is even when you win, you lose. And if we had picked up that nuance at the start of the dot-com era, as opposed to just half of it, I think it would have been very helpful. And it was always very relevant to me because I was always involved in ugly monopolistic businesses trying to fuck people by extracting monopoly rents from information. And we did it quite well many times. Right? <laughs> Nothing has changed, sadly. <laughs> Well, it's a lot harder than it used to be, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's still some information monopolies, though, of note. <laughs> you know, if I were Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or one of these people, one way I, you could spend your money that would probably do the most good would be to open source all the scientific literature instantly. It wouldn't be that expensive. It's probably $20 billion, something like that. You know, that's one of the worst abusive, you know, rent seekers out there. He's goddamn journal publishing companies that want to charge you $29 for an article drives me nuts. On the other hand, there are backdoors, which some of us know about how to get around that, but we won't talk about those in uh, public. So yeah, that was interesting. And to the point, probably partially unfairly, but partially fairly, 
I guess it wasn't you actually, but somewhere else I pulled up the internet. Recently, Brand has been heralded as the first internet utopian. Indeed, in several contemporary books, he's been called out as the person responsible for the libertarian ideas that grew out of the creation of the internet. Yes, maybe. What do you think about that? When I started this project uh, in 2017, you know, Donald Trump had been elected president, and these two books were published. One by Jonathan Taplin, uh, Move Fast and Break Things. The other by Franklin Foyer, World Without Mind. I think Franklin Foyer was pretty upset that somebody had destroyed the New Republic, and he was uh, still somebody from Facebook uh, had affected the the New Republic. Anyway, what struck me about those two books is they both began with biographical sketches of Stuart Brandon. I thought, well, that's odd. And the sort of net was they were looking for like the, you know, the first sinner or the the guy responsible. And I was really sort of perturbed that they went back to brand. Um, You know, I think they were kind of channeling a book written by Fred Turner, a communications professor at Stanford University called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. And then Jill Lepore did the same thing the next year in American History. And I think it's just simply wrong. I mean, Stuart was one of the first people to report on Silicon Valley. And I actually came to believe that the whole Earth catalog was actually one of the first products from Silicon Valley. But they have it turned around 180 degrees. Um, Brand had the uncanny ability to show up at just the right time. You know, Silicon Valley was named in 1971. And Stuart showed up in 1967 while all of his friends were going back to the land, which I thought was really quite remarkable that he would uh, show up in Menlo Park, California, right when all the forces that would lead to the creation of Silicon Valley were at work. He was a technological optimist. He remains a technological optimist. He was a libertarian as a young man, but it was never a pure libertarianism, uh, uh, you know, in an Ayn Rand sense of the world, or to be more modern, a Peter Thiel sense of the word. He was always uh, committed to uh, environmental values, um, to protecting the environment, to protecting nature. Um, And early on, uh, he shed uh, some of the Ayn Rand entrepreneurialism that he had been briefly had a, a bit of a fling with it when he was at Stanford. But to call him a libertarian is just is just dead wrong. Yeah, that, that's right. And of course, many of us had our youthful infatuations with Ayn Rand. I remember reading The Fountainhead when I was 15 and going, wow, what a dude, right? And then I read Atlas Shrugged at 17 and go, wow, I even read the speech, right? But as he got older and wiser, he go, well, yeah, in a world of sociopathic people with IQs of 130, you might be able to make a society work that way, but I'd assure as shit wouldn't want to live in one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think that that sort of frames Stuart's point of view pretty well. Probably not a bad description for Peter Thiel, though he might be a little little smarter than IQ 130, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, a lot of us went through that, but didn't like him, but he did seem to shake out of it pretty quickly. So anyway, let's get on to sort of the rough outline of his bio. He was born in 1938 in Rockford, Illinois, the home of the Tower of Time. If you ever get to Rockford, Illinois, look it up. It's one of the better clock and watch museums in the world. How the hell it got to Rockford, Illinois, I don't know, but I happened to be there one time. It's a pretty cool uh, thing. And his family seemed to have been from a family of wealth and business people. And his father kind of branched off from the family business to start his own business. Seemed to be somewhere in the, you know, the lower end of upper middle class. Does that sound about right to you? It was a mix. I, 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 that does sound right to me. But I visited his home and his home in Rockford was a purely middle-class home. It was not an upper-middle-class home. The upper-middle-class homes were about a block away on the river. 
and his parents bought a bit of property on the river and they were, you know, they were striving. That was the American dream. They always wanted to build their house on the river. But it's significant to me. They didn't build the house. Their kids' educations were expensive and they sent their kids to good schools. That was the family value. And so, you know, yes, uh, upper, upper middle class in some ways, middle class in other ways. It is always interesting how, you know, people at the lower end of upper middle class choose to spend their money, right? And it sounded like, as you said, education was a big part of it. Both Stuart and his brother both went to Exeter, right? Middle class people don't send their kids to Exeter, right? You know, his dad had gone to M- MIT. His mom went to Vassar. That was in the, the family blood. And, that, you know, the, the family was on both sides uh, came from Michigan wealth, um, you know, a department store, timber, a mineral interests. So, that, and, you know, they, they, they had the family compound uh, on a lake in the middle of the state. So that was, that was all. But, you know, significantly, his, his father decided not to go into the family business, but moved to Rockford and, and you know, out, went out on his own. Uh, and I think that was significant. And, you know, you mentioned the family compound. It seemed to have been a, an important attractor, an important value creator in his life where the family would locate to the family compound on the lake for most of the summer and the kids got to run wild as kids used to be able to do. I was one of the last generations that free-range kids were a thing, but he seemed to have really taken advantage of that, had a big influence on him. Yeah, you know, he spent every summer outside. Uh, in many ways, that was the kind of boyhood that Hemingway had. You know, Hemingway grew up in Chicago and then summered at Walloon Lake. Stewart grew up in Rockford and summered at Higgins Lake, which is a very Hemingway-esque kind of scene. Um, to compound that, uh, you know, he stumbled across something in um, Outdoor Life magazine uh, when he was 10 years old, he took this thing called the Conservation Pledge, um, which he could still recite when we first began meeting when he was 80 years old. And I think that was the through line through everything that Brand did was this commitment to protecting uh, the environment. I mean, he no longer calls himself an environment environmentalist because of his quarrels with the environmental movement over technology, but he does consider himself a conservationist. We'll get to that later. In fact, I have the outdoor pledge in quotes. I give my pledge as an American to save and faithfully to defend from waste the natural resources of my country, its air, soil, and minerals, its forest, waters, and wildlife. Pretty strong stuff for, you know, 1947 or something, right? That's right. And the fact that he, he stayed committed to that all the way through. Yeah, very, very interesting. I never heard of Outdoor Life. I looked it up and it appears it's a sibling publication with Field and Stream and some of those other ones that were big in that epoch. I don't even know if they still exist. I guess they do. And he also developed an interest in Indians at that time from a Native American person who helped the family out, I think, and around and about the lake, as I recall. Yeah, there was, what's the word, not last of the Mohicans, but in a way that was the connection that they had. But that Indian who was close to the family several generations before Stuart was imprinted on the brand of family. But, you know, the, the real contact with uh, American Indians came later when he, was, when he was out in the West. We'll talk about that later. So anyway, he goes off to Exeter. And at, at that time, the general expectation, you're an Exeter boy, you're going to go to Hobbit, Yale, or Princeton. But he does it, as it turns out. And this is one of these interesting forks in his life. His brother seemed to be a real character, Mike. Did you ever get a chance to talk to him? Is he still around? Oh, yeah. Mike's great. Mike's uh, still around, too, and he's living in Portland, Oregon. Anyway, he seemed like a real interesting guy. He was the one who broke the mold and decided to go to Stanford. And Stuart 
tagged along with the family when they went out there and, you know, decided he too was going to be a Westerner. And so when he went off to college, he went to Stanford. Any other color you want to provide on that sort of key life decision? Well, you know, that's, that's, you know, so, so much of the world is about serendipity. And the thing I love about Stewart's decision to end up at Stanford, I mean, he looked at other schools as well. Um, he looked at Reed. He almost went to Reed, but uh, he thought it was a little pink. Uh, there's a wonderful back and forth and correspondence over whether. Yeah, I love that little back and forth. That was hilarious. <laughs> they told him they were no pinker than some of the East Coast schools, which I just loved. But, but um, you know, so Mike was uh, idiosyncratic. He was independent and he was also a, a jock. He was a football star in school. And, you know, he, he could have gone to those Ivy League schools and played football, but he had a kind of arched eyebrow. And so he read an article in Life magazine where it described the Stanford football coach who had lost every game in one season and Stanford rehired the guy. And so Mike decided that was the kind of place he wanted to go to school. And ultimately that led to Stewart going to Stanford. Um, and so what do you make of something like that? Yeah, life is more contingent than most of us like to think. You know, I used to give a talk to second year MBA students called My Famous Career. And I've done all kinds of wild shit. But one of the things I highlighted was at least 60 to 70 percent of it's pure damn luck. Right. And these things that happen in your life and you just pick one of them and it fundamentally leads you into one way or another. Of course, you have to be ready to take advantage of luck. And it does seem that Stewart had that open mind. You know, I bet you if you ran the big five personality test on him, he'd scored the 98th percentile on openness. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. That's interesting. So when he gets to Stanford, one of the things that I think is highly compatible with this idea of him being a small E entrepreneur or catalyst is he was a pretty relentless networker. You know, he got introduced to interesting people, Dick Raymond and his wife, and Milstrup, et cetera. And, you know, it's relatively uncommon for a freshman to be networking as relentlessly as he seemed to do. He was kind of a, there was a bit of, let's see how to describe it. There was a bit of a, a goody two-shoes to him. I mean, he was kind of, I mean, I, I, if you grew up like I did watching a, a, a series called Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, my wife and I actually revisited Leave it to Beaver about two months ago. We watched one episode and just picked one at random in the middle of the series. And we go, yep, that's Leave it to Beaver. All right. That was a standard when we were growing up. <laughs> but that kind of Beaver, uh, you know, Beaver Cleaver, you know, just really earnest and honest and a little bit naive. Uh, I think when Stewart uh, showed up at Stanford, that's sort of where he was. Very Midwest, um, not very cosmopolitan, but really open to learning about the world. Yeah, and really open. And, you know, I think one of the very interesting encounters that I believe had a pretty significant impact was another brother Mike recommendation was when he became associated with Frederick Spiegelberg, who's a very important figure in essentially bridging German philosophy to the United States. Uh, Spiegelberg uh, also sort of opening up his students to Asian spiritual and religious influences. I think that confluence was very important. Spiegelberg was one of the two most popular uh, professors on that on, on campus during the 1950s, and everybody who took a course from him was kind of gobsmacked, and it had a huge impact on uh, a number of people, including the people who founded Esalen. You know, they were Spiegelberg devotees as well. The Murphys. There was a, just a very interesting coincidence that through a student activity, the what was it, the International Student Association or something, he ended up going down to Big Sur, which I must say is, you know, Big Sur is probably the place in the world that causes my bell to ring. 
You know, I just love Big Sur. You know, every time I go there, I go, why would I ever live anywhere else? But have I ever lived in Big Sur? No, but I spent a fair bit of time there. And it seemed like it had a similar impact on Stuart. And right place, right time, you know, before Esalon really existed, he got to meet the family that eventually ended up creating it. You know, just great timing. But he took advantage of it. He made some connections, right? That's right. And the fact that he ended up in the International Student uh, Association as opposed to being a fraternity boy. You know, he went through fraternity rush. He should have gotten into a fraternity uh, through some kind of, you know, family inheritance because his brother had been a Fidel, but he didn't get accepted. He didn't even get accepted to the eating clubs. And so he was kind of a loner and he found his way to, to this foreign student organization, which really opened him up to the world in an important way. Yeah, that was, you know, again, a choice he made, right? And it turned out to have implications, highly contingent. In this case, it led to some very interesting things. You also write, reading was almost always the portal through which brand veered off in new directions. I identify with that. I've always been a voracious reader, read about 75 books a year, start 100, finish 75. And it's been, you know, sort of very important fuel. And you know, I can see that theme coming up again and again and again. You know, here he is closeted in the whole earth offices with stacks of books and plowing through them. But one of the things you said about doors of perception, Aldous Huxley's doors of perception, I thought was very interesting. And one that Brand would initially find valuable and then ultimately find useless. Yeah. So I was describing the arc of his uh, involvement with psychedelic drugs. You know, he read about and actually listened to Huxley at Stanford. Uh, then when he was in the army, he fell in with uh, sort of some bohemian artists. And, uh, you know, he's uh, 60, 61, was introduced to psychedelics and then came back to San Francisco and got deeply into a really important community of people who use psychedelic drugs in a systematic way. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And one of the things I, again, interesting, no idea, was after freshman year at Stanford, for some God-known reason, he talked himself into working at a logging outfit up in the Northwest owned by some cousins or something. And he came back thinking that, you know, this needs to be the basis of a Moby Dick scale novel, the life of these loggers. You know, he's like, wow, wow. And of course, he later was connected to Kesey, and Kesey drilled it, right, with sometimes a great notion. Completely. And, you know, the logging thing was in his blood from the family. You know, Mike had gone up there and worked, and he was following in Mike's footsteps, and that's a big part of why he went and worked there. He really wanted to work in the in the backwoods. Only did it for one summer. I think Mike did it for two or three and ended up in Oregon, actually, later on. But but it was a it was an important rite of passage for Stuart. That'll make a man out of you. You know, that'll kill you, right? <laughs> that is hard-ass work. I've done a lot of ugly jobs. I've done a little bit of logging, and uh, it's the worst of the ones I've ever dealt with, even a little bit. And, of course, sometimes a great notion, just an amazing novel. Right? And to my mind, I, I will regularly put down the marker and say, I believe it's the best novel written in English since World War II. And that may be a little extreme, but it's that good. Definitely. And, you know, and Kesey wasn't even a logger. You know, he hung out with the loggers. He went to bars and stuff like that. But, you know, he was an Oregonian. He picked up that culture. Now, the other book that you reference, and again, one that had a big influence on me when I was 15, I think he read it later, was The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, one of the things that I noticed, you know, as someone who grew up as a true new leftist, uh, one of the things I enjoyed most about my interaction with Stuart while I was writing this book 
is he's not predictable. Uh, you can't uh, frame his politics. And I think he, he got that kind of openness in part from his interactions with Hoffer. He got a detector uh, for sectarian uh, worldviews, cult worldviews. He really backs away every time he smells a cult of any kind. Yeah, and you know, and we'll talk about a few of those examples throughout his life. And I kind of synthesize that as even things not as strong as a cult, he seemed to have a strong negative reaction to tribalism. You know that even if it was more benign than a cult, once it became the conventional wisdom of some group of people, then he immediately started backing away and looking for the new edge. Because if you're an edge seeker, those tribal resonances are never the edge, right? And, you know, I think that the roots of that came at Exeter, where he had to figure out how to succeed when he wasn't the brightest one in the class. You know, he ended up being at Exeter with all these overachievers. And he found that uh, by going in a different direction was often a good way to compete effectively. Don't go where they are, but go someplace else and achieve there. And that's been a pattern throughout his life. Yeah, I agree. That's a great strategy. You know, so today, you know, we have our damn society, which is tearing itself apart with these tribal resonances. And this is a great lesson for us all. You know, on one side, we have the MAGA nuts and on the other, we have the Wokies. And, you know, they're both very evil. You know, on one side, you have authoritarianism with the MAGAites and on the Wokies, even though most of them don't realize it yet, it's a proto-totalitarianism. And there's like seems to be no way to reconcile those two factions. And, you know, people just walk away from those two factions. They're both wrong, right? And I don't think Stewart would be attracted to either one of them. No, uh, you know, staying away from true believers is probably an important lesson. Yeah. So all you kids out there, go read Eric Hoffer. My father, oddly enough, a ninth grade dropout, but a person who read the newspaper assiduously, was a Washington, D.C. cop. So he, you know, had pulled over various congressmen and given them tickets, or actually that you don't give a congressman a ticket, as it turned out, but very interested in politics. When I was 15, he said, this is a book you got to read, James, right? I think he thought I had some tendencies towards true believerhood. And I will say that book was a great immune injection against adherence to tribal resonances. Yeah. You know, just an interject here. You mentioned Stuart's reading habits. That was something that struck me over and over again that he's probably one of the two best read people I've ever met in my life. Um, he has a remarkable library. And once he spent two or three hours giving me a tour of the library and, you know, he'd read every book in his 5,000 uh, volume library. It was, it was uh, overwhelming actually. That's amazing. Who's the first? <laughs> oh, um, Ira Sandpearl, uh, Joan Baez's mentor. Ira Sandpearl was a early American Gandhiist. He worked at this wonderful Menlo Park bookstore called Kepler's. Ira was the guy behind the counter, and he was my librarian when I was growing up. Wow, that's great. I love that. I've probably read 5,000 books. That's probably, or maybe a little more. So probably in your list too, as well. Now, on to North Beach. Again, seemingly a fortuitous but edge attracting kind of thing, right? And Joan Squires. Yeah, Joan Squires was a worldly young woman. I think she was a year ahead of Stuart at Stanford. They became friends. I think they dated, but there were always issues between them, but they stayed friends. And Joan was really aghast at coming to Stanford and the fraternity culture. And so she found the edges that you're talking about. And she had found this bohemian world. And she was one of the paths to North Beach and the bohemian culture for, for Stuart. And he, he just fell in love with something um, that was intellectual and was open to new ideas. And it really became a magnet for him. 
And to your earlier description of Leave it to Beaver, I love this quote from the book. Brand was remarkably straight-laced, still had a Boy Scout quality about him. At the same time, he was intensely curious and clearly trying to escape his Midwestern skin. Squires was a revelation. (laughs) Very much so. And he would have been about 20 at the time, maybe, something like that. 18 or 19, really early. Whoa, that means to have been turned on to North Beach in like 1958, 57, something like that. That would have been cool. I mean, I didn't make it to North Beach till 1975 on my first hitchhiking trip out west. And why did I go there to North Beach? Because I had to see City Lights Bookstore, goddammit. And that's what about all that was left at that point. So it was good that you, you made it. You know, even the, even the hippies were gone by 1975. Yeah, and I also had to, you know, go over and check out Hate Ashbury, and there were just a few, you know, drugged out people passed out on the sidewalk, and various boarded up stores and what have you. So I was just a little too young for all that stuff. Oh well, that's the way it goes. But back to Brand, I wrote in my notes, you know, about this North Beach phenomena, and I thought about it. Kind of a theme through his life is he was always a stranger in a strange land. I, I think that's fair. Yeah, an outsider. Yeah. And again, this anti-tribal resonance, you know, as we know, most humans are tribal resonators. But if you're not, you're always standing a little to the side. Yeah. And when the digital world uh, emerged, I think that's a good description of his relationship to the digital world, where he was early, but never, you know, he was never a hacker. He was one of the first people to discover hackers, if not the first. Yep. And but he helped do the, the first hackers conference, right? Well, yeah, it was uh, it was actually Kevin Kelly's idea, but uh, Stuart and Ryan Phelan, Stuart's um, second wife, helped organize it. Very cool. Then Stuart's initiation to sex at the age of twenty with a hooker in Switzerland. What the hell? It was actually in Paris in Pigalle, a kind of a, a, a low rent neighborhood. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was a disappointment. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, and of course that was that era. Probably not that strange to still be a virgin at 20 in 1958. No, I, I think the timing was pretty normal. And, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, Stuart was good and drunk at, at the, the time it happened. And I don't, I'm surprised he remembered anything from the experience at all. But didn't seem to put him off women. No, not at all. No, 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 no. He was very typically American in that way. You were fairly circumspect about all that, but he seemed to have gone through periods of fairly serious womanizing. It's funny you should mention that. There, you know, there, there are 60,000 words of my original draft that didn't make it into the final published volume, and many of the stories <laughs> fell on the cutting room floor <laughs> that I thought were vastly humorous, but they were extraneous, I think. We got the idea. Tell me one. Well, uh, my favorite was he was in the Army. Um, he had a friend who was uh, in Army intelligence and uh, was in Washington, D.C. They were both living in D.C., and they went double dating in the Virginia countryside. And Stewart's date went home. And uh, the woman with his friend, they were staying in adjoining rooms in a hotel room, and she went to bed with his friend. And after about 10 minutes, she told this guy, you know, I'd really rather be with Stuart. And so she got up and went into the other bedroom. <laughs> pretty laissez-faire for those days, right? <laughs> well, this guy was pretty pissed more at her than at Stuart. Uh, his, his friendship with Stuart actually survived this incident, which I thought was pretty uh, pretty interesting. Pretty cool. Not entirely clear in my mind. I think it was while well, you're still at Stanford. Stewart somehow got engaged with the Sequoia Seminar folks. Yes, that was um, I think before his senior year. 
Sequoia Seminar um, had come out of a couple, the Rathbuns. This was the other most popular professor on the Stanford campus during the 1950s, Harry Rathbun, taught a course in business law. The Rathbuns were interested in the historical teachings of Jesus, and they had created this retreat center uh, that was actually, I, I learned later, co-located in the Santa Cruz Mountains uh, with the, the Quakers. Um, and actually, uh, this is sort of where I come into the picture. Uh, the summer camp that it was sort of the defining world for me was located in the same place in the 1950s <laughs> on that same piece of land where the Sequoia Seminar was. But Stuart went through that. Um, it was a kind of intense process um, for him. Uh, you know, he wrote letters home talking to his parents about how significant it was for him. Um, but it was glancing. Actually, earlier... One of the guys who would be instrumental in bringing LSD into the pre-Silicon Valley uh, community had a midlife crisis at the Sequoia Seminar, and then he met a guy who was kind of the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. Ah, Al Hubbard. You know about Al Hubbard. Oh, I've known all about Al Hubbard for a long time. I think he's one of the most fascinating American folk characters of all. Yeah, amazing. I mean, nobody knows that much about him, right? Of course, but oh, although there is now a biography, which is worth reading. Oh, I got to do it. I learned a lot from the biography. I'll have to check that out because I've always thought that the shock wave of five million people doing LSD in the late '60s produced some major shock to our social systems. And Hubbard was, as you say, the Johnny Appleseed uh, long before Owsley or anybody else. And his story is very interesting. So, And the other thing about the Sequoia Seminar, as best I can tell from my little bit of research I did preparing for the show, was you could also say in some ways it was one of the roots of the later human potential movement. Absolutely. There are a number of uh, groups spilled out of the Sequoia Seminar, not S directly, but other related, all of this stuff was intermingled in the 1970s on, on the Mid Peninsula in the Bay Area. And one of the roots was the Sequoia Seminar. Yeah, quite interesting. I actually found a history of the Sequoia Seminars and the words Stuart Brand turned up eight times, actually. So he did leave some footprint there, which is pretty impressive. Then the next thing in his life after graduating from Stanford, I mean, he didn't seem like a super serious intellectual while he was at Stanford, but he, he, he sampled a lot of things and met some very interesting people, was he went off to the Army, so he wouldn't get drafted, presumably. And he could have gone to graduate school to avoid it, but he, from a military-ish family, his brother was in the military, his brother-in-law ended up as a big-time general, as I recall. And so he joined the army. And what did he find out about the military? If he could have asked me, I could have told him. It's mostly boring and stupid, interspersed with some outrageous excitement. But I think he ended up mostly with the boring and stupid. Yeah, and he came face to face with bureaucracies that sort of don't have any rationale for what they do. And he really came to hate the military. But on the way in, he went there because once again, he was following in Mike's footsteps. Um, Mike had joined the army and Stuart had been following Mike all along the way up until that point. That was, a, they branched after that, but that was really, Mike had a big influence on Stuart going into the military. Some of the stories in the book about the idiot bureaucrats that he had to deal with, it was like, ah, this was a catch 22, right? More or less. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the other thing that's really striking, and you know, if you talk to Stuart today, and this is really the value as a biographer of having a contemporaneous documents 
because Stuart has a kind of hazy and uh, pleasant view of his time in the military. He's very f- proud of the fact he was in the military. He, he sort of takes lessons from his military training. But if you read his writing at the time that he left the military, he was bitter. He was an angry man. He didn't understand it. It was irrational. And um, he, he realized that you know, he'd come into the military as an anti-communist in a you know, a kind of a, a textbook kind of sense that uh, everybody in America was anti-communist at that point. And, you know, when he re- when he came out of the military, he realized that, you know, a pox on both of their houses, that these systems were more similar in some ways than they were different. And it had a really dramatic impact on him. He went off and, you know, he didn't resist the draft, but he did not stay in the reserves when he left the military. The tap dance all around, finding clever ways not to fulfill his reserve obligations. I think there was a generation of young men who did exactly the same thing. And the Pentagon was very uh, afraid during Vietnam of uh, creating you know, resistance within the reserves. And so they didn't push it. You could skirt the edges if you'd done your service. But you know, there was also this important moment where he had to make a decision. He could have stayed in the military. There were not many places to go. One of the places he might have been able to go was Vietnam. Um, he had this notion of being a photographer, a military photographer in, in Vietnam, but he was going to have to re-up for another three years. And so he decided not to. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that was a significant branch point in his life. Oh, the other branch point, again, as I alluded to in the pregame show, I had a, an analog in my own life, was he signed up for ranger training, right? And if he'd gone through ranger training, he likely would have stayed for a career, was my read. And, you know, rangers training is amazingly brutal, you know, not quite as bad as the SEALs, but it's pretty brutal. And the story you tell on how he was just destroyed by it must have had a powerful impact on him and put him on a completely different branch. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, you know, you think once again about serendipity, he might have toughed it out if he hadn't gone through it during the winter. The winter added another layer to, you know, it was the time he spent in the pool freezing in 37 degree water that completely undid him. And then, you know, somebody was telling him, well, we're going to have to go and sleep in, you know, wet sleeping bags in these cold mountains. And and that just sort of put him over top. If he'd gone through it in the summertime, it might have been a different thing. It depends what you think about heat and insects. Georgia in July. I would much prefer the winter myself, but that's to each your own, right? Well, on the other hand, you got to give him credit. He bounced right back from it and went through parachute school. He was not crushed by it, but he was deflected, shall we say, because parachute school is no trivial thing either. Yeah, and you know, you could see Brandon being an iconoclast and being independent, even in the Army. I mean, he insisted on dragging his camera along, and they'd let him take pictures during basic training, which I think is probably very unusual. And he kept trying to get an assignment as a photographer, and they kept beating him down, and they sent him off to be a drill instructor in New Jersey. And that was just uh, soul-deadening for him. And that's when he found his way into the Bohemian community with his friends in New York and at the USCO, this sort of fringe group of artists and technologists that he joined. Yeah, that was quite interesting. They stumbled into those characters. You know, again, here it is, you know, 1961. Holy shit. So, but anyway, we have to move along, unfortunately. Time is moving. In 1962, he gets out of the military. And where does he go back to? But North Beach. And here's a quote from the book. Returning to North Beach in the fall of 1962 proved to be remarkable timing. The beats were fading. It would be four years before the emergence of Haight-Ashbury and the hippies and five years before the Summer of Love which broadcast the arrival of the counterculture to the world. 
Brand had placed himself at the center, one of the most creative places in the country, just at the moment when a great rupture for mainstream culture was about to occur. Yeah. How do you do that? I mean, so he had developed his passion for his interest in the Beats before he left for the Army. And as soon as he was free, he came right back. He settled in North Beach. He wanted to study to become a photographer. Um, you know, he was sort of on the cusp between um, artistic photography and photojournalism, but he really was passionate about photography. It was incredibly inexpensive uh, to live in North Beach at the time. I think he might have been paying $50 a month for two apartments, not just one, in a condemned building, a soon-to-be-condemned building. You know, that was one of the interesting points I discovered. You know, Stuart was wealthy in an as-needed-to way, particularly after he got out of, out of the military. You know, his mom would send him a check for 50 bucks or so once in a while, and it was just enough money so he didn't have to get a day job. And I think that was really significant. Um, it allowed him to follow these curious interests and uh, persist rather than having to, you know, go to work. And that was so cool in those days. It was so cheap. I mean, you could live on $100 a month if you really wanted to crash in a crash pad and, you know, what have you. But not anymore, unfortunately. Not in San Francisco, right? Well, it was true for a long time. You know, even when I began as a freelancer, I was living in Palo Alto in the 1970s and paying 50 bucks a month for renting a room. You couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, not at all. So the next significant inflection point was he got connected to the International Foundation for Advanced Study, another very important little nexus in American history, not known by most people. Absolutely. And, you know, that comes out of his visit to Esalen. You know, they're, they're those guys who, so this again, this goes back to the Sequoia Seminar. This goes back to this group of people who were mostly uh, pre-Silicon Valley engineers. They were technologists. Al Hubbard shows up. He introduces these guys to LSD. Um, these are six couples that are sort of meeting informally around the Sequoia Seminar. And they decided that there must be a link between creativity and LSD. And so they set up this foundation to explore that in a, quote, scientific way. And they take ultimately over 350 people through this incredibly intense experience. And Stuart learned about it shortly after he came to North Beach. And he was one of the first people to go through that experience. Interesting. And he tripped for the first time there. I think he was number 155, as you report in their list of psychonauts. And this is your write-up of his first trip. To the Menlo Park Foundation researchers, Bran had proved a tough nut to crack. Their analysis that he was stuck in here and now concepts and resistant to fully letting go. They saw him as the model of the uptight intellectual guy who depended on logical analysis for emotional defense. <laughs> I think that pretty much captures the early Stuart. I think that's, I don't think he would uh, dispute that. Uh, but the the you know the remarkable thing, and we've talked about this a lot because he doesn't remember it, but it's in his notebook. They gave him two oral doses, and then he was still not where they wanted him to be, and so they gave him a third dose by injection. I can't imagine. I mean, you know, I've taken a little bit of LSD. I just can't. I simply can't imagine that kind of experience. Yeah, I wonder how many micrograms that was. Probably a bunch. Yeah, I tripped like six times back in the 70s, and I think 400 micrograms was the most I ever did. And that was just enough to push me over the edge to ego loss for about half an hour. But I mean, probably also one of those intellectually resistant sorts. 
I always enjoyed it, though. I never had any bad trips or anything. It was kind of cool. But yeah, he, he continued to use acid a fair bit. But then he eventually, as to the quote about doors of perception, he eventually decided, as many of us did, that we got what we were going to get from it. Yeah. And in 1969, after uh, this last kind of blast with Kesey and uh, in, in uh, I think it was in, in Colorado, they had something called the Great Bus Race. And Stewart dropped acid at that event. And at that point, he was trying to break with all of that. And he decided that he'd put drugs down and, and walked away from it. Let's hop ahead to Kesey and the Pranksters and the Trips Festival and all that. Yeah, so the pranksters began organizing these events called acid tests. These were rock and roll parties uh, fueled by LSD. Um, this forged the Grateful Dead. Um, the first time, you know, they were the warlocks. They were kind of the house band of the pranksters. They played around the mid-peninsula. We're talking Santa Cruz, San Jose, Palo Alto, all had acid tests. And then they came to Stuart and said, we want to put on a really big one. And Stuart knew that they weren't organizers and they wouldn't get it together. And he took it upon himself to become the prime organizer. Um, he ran into this guy by the name of Bill Graham and asked Bill Graham to help him with the publicity. Bill Graham was really good at that. Yeah, hell yes. <laughs> Out of that, I mean, what's so striking to me is the day after the Trips Festival, which was a three-day affair at the Longshoremen's Hall in San Francisco, uh, which was made by the fact that the dead played on Saturday night. And as Stuart said, Saturday night was the beginning of the Grateful Dead and the end of everything else. All that eclectic stuff he was trying to get it washed out because people really wanted to dance. Um, but but Graham really understood that there was money in the proto-San Francisco music scene at that time. And so the next day, he leased the Fillmore. And that led directly to the San Francisco music scene. Amazing, right? And interesting with the relationship with Ken Kesey, you know, one of the books I really loved when I was in college was The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And you, know, you referenced that Brand makes a cameo there. And sure enough, I downloaded the Kindle, searched it. And sure enough, I think he turns up like eight times in the book and on the second page. And that was quite interesting. And the, that whole phenomenon of the pranksters and that whole scene, so intense. And Ken Kesey had an expression, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus, talking about the bus further, which they drove around in. And I think you alluded to the fact that Stewart resisted being on the bus. Kesey was a very charismatic leader, and Stewart and he kind of butted heads. I mean, Kesey was the classic alpha male, and Brand decided that, you know, if, if you were in this situation where you had to give your life to, to this thing, you'd best to walk away. And he did at a certain point. And again, that's this theme we talked about earlier of him recoiling from tribal resonances, right? He doesn't want to be into anybody's tribe long term because, you know, by definition, once it becomes a tribe, it's no longer the edge, right? There has to be somewhere more interesting to be. That exactly describes what happened to Stuart. Yes. Now, the next episode, one I knew nothing about, Stuart was at or near the very beginning of multimedia, multimedia presentations. Yeah, there, there was a group, this, this group, USCO, that was playing around with multimedia when multimedia was three slide projectors, an audio track, and a single screen. And they were playing with electronics, with sound in interesting ways. And Stuart started to make a book about the American Indian experience that he'd stumbled across on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. He went up there because uh, this guy, Dick Raymond, who has become his mentor, had introduced him to this tribe. And the idea was that he create a brochure for them um, that they could use to sort of uh, help the 
the Indian reservation planned to become a tourist destination, but it devolved into a multimedia production. And Stuart showed it around the Bay Area. Uh, it had a lot of influence on the politics of uh, the way we saw Indians during that period. You know, Indians, for decades, the U.S. government had been busily trying to integrate them into American society and get rid of anything Indian. And after that stuff in the 60s, which Stuart highlighted, the notion of preserving the Indian identity, the Indian experience became relevant and became an important policy thing that went forward. Yeah, I guess the name of his show was America Needs Indians. Apparently it was quite popular. It got good reviews and things of that sort. It did. I mean, you know, this is something he showed probably a dozen times. And the last time that he showed American Needs Indians was actually a great failure. He set up a teepee on the floor in the Trips Festival on Friday and he and another guy got inside and they were playing something, an Indian bone game, and they were projecting the images onto the, um, onto the teepee and nobody could figure out what was going on. And so it kind of it kind of lost its resonance. Yeah, if you're eating acid and listening to, you know, psychedelic rock and roll, it's going to be hard to make sense out of some multiple screenshot. What the hell? <laughs> and as he goes through all this, kind of the next move, and again, at least my read of it, was his greatest single invention, but one which sort of plagued him eventually, was coming up with the idea of the Whole Earth Catalog. But before we go to the Whole Earth Catalog, the famous story about why haven't we seen a photograph of the Whole Earth? Maybe you can tell us that. And then we'll transition to the Whole Earth Catalog. Yeah, part of American culture. Stuart um, was thinking a lot about his dad, who was very sick. He'd had the troubled relationship with his dad. He went up on the roof of his apartment, dropped a half a tab of acid, and sort of contemplated the, the landscape. And he had this epiphany after a little while that the buildings weren't exactly parallel. And then in his stone mind's eye, he was up above the earth, and it was this glorious round orb. And then he realized there wasn't a picture of the whole earth, even though we'd been in space for more than a half a decade. And so he came down off the roof with this campaign in mind. He got a button. Why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole earth? He got a sandwich board. He stood on a bunch of campuses. He mailed copies of the button to everybody in Congress, to the White House, to the Kremlin. And uh, that image, that symbol of the whole earth became the symbol of a generation. And it was a counter. It was important because it was a counterweight. You know, the 50s had been this very dark period where the symbol of humanity was the mushroom cloud. And the symbol of the whole earth was this hopeful symbol. And it, it, it really had framed the environmental movement. It, it became part and partial of the environmental movement. Whether it actually led NASA to produce a photo of the whole earth, nobody's ever been able to prove one way or another. They did. They did the next year after he had this campaign. And there's this wonderful story. Uh, Mike Malone tells that his dad worked in security at NASA and he was tasked by NASA in, in Washington to go out to, uh, to, to go out and look at Brandon, see if he was a threat. And he sends a letter to headquarters saying, you know, the guy's harmless. Don't worry about it. By the way, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole earth? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Here's somebody in the bureaucracy with a sense of humor and a sense of, hmm, that's a damn good question, right? So then soon thereafter, he comes up with this idea of the whole earth catalog which is, as I mentioned previously, seemed to me, at least from reading your tale, to be both his greatest, least public triumph and something that came to, he considered to be kind of just a burden at some point. But let's start with the beginning. 
Yeah. So his dad died. Uh, he went back to Illinois for the funeral. He was on a plane coming back and he was thinking about his, all his friends going to the communes and he was thinking, what can I do to help them? And he came up with the idea of a truck that would uh, drive around to the countryside and sell them information and tools. He figured that's what they needed. You know, he was very much under the influence at this point of Buckminster Fuller, who, of course, you know, believed that if you gave someone a tool and taught them how to use it, that's how you change the world. So that he was he was channeling Fuller in that way, in a sense. And also, I learned later Doug Engelbart, which we can get into if we have time. But uh, then he, he, you know, he got Dick Raymond's backing. He started out with the idea. He bought a truck. He went out to some communes, and he discovered that his friends on the communes had no money. So that wasn't going to work. <laughs> they had no boxes, no money. <laughs> so he pivoted. Uh, he pivoted to the idea of a catalog. Um, you know, the first issue, uh, they only sold a couple thousand copies, but it resonated. It resonated with my generation, probably with your generation as well. And uh, it became a Bible. And ultimately, over just three years, it would sell three million copies. It won the National Book Award in 1972. But even after the first year, Stuart was buried. He probably didn't do a good enough job of delegating. The more successful it was, the harder it was. Uh, and it just, he was in a very depressed state. Um, he was having trouble in his marriage. And uh, he decided even after a year that he was going to kill it off. And ultimately, it only lasted in its initial phase for three years. I was a little too young to notice the first one, but the last one, you know, landed with a big noise in when I was a freshman in college. And I think it would have been when I was a freshman in college, 1971, 72. Even Steve Jobs saw one a couple of years in 75, I think was when Jobs saw it. But, you know, the significant thing about the whole earth catalog is information was scarce. And interesting information was even more scarce. And Stuart had this wonderful editor sense of finding interesting things. I can't tell you how many people I ran into who stumbled across something in the catalog and it sent their life in a completely different direction. That's what it was. And I think there was two very interesting policies that he adopted early on that may have been a part of the success. I think you referenced them both. One is that he does positive reviews only and no politics, right? And it's interesting, my podcast, maybe I stole them from Stuart. I never have guests on that I totally disagree with. You know, there I have some on where we have a little bit of start, but I don't bring anybody on just to, to argue with them, right? I want to bring their ideas forward. I don't engage in team red, team blue politics on the show. We sometimes allude to it, but we don't have shows about that. And those seem to have been both very interesting design principles, particularly at that time where an awful lot of, especially counterculture journalism, was very political. Yeah, and Stuart was in no sense a part of the traditional left, uh, the old left in particular. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he was good friends with many of the leaders of the new left, like him and Abby Hoffman were complete best friends. And yet uh, Stuart was not on the left. And, you know, he was kind of resisting that. If you look carefully at the catalog and the various indexes, uh, they, they also had these quarterly updates. There was a lot of environmental stuff in there. Uh, you know, Stuart's sympathies were pretty obvious, but he did have that formal ban against politics. That was interesting. And the other thing I loved, I finally found out who Jay Baldwin was, you know, having read the 71 or 72 version, but then particularly reading the Whole Earth Review later in the late 80s and into the early 90s. These little 
brilliant squibs, but they were just signed J-Bone. Who the hell is this guy? Is it a guy? Is it a girl? I have no idea. Well, whatever it is, it's got the best taste in tools anybody I ever read and writes these mini, mini reviews with this dry elegance that I, I've never seen the equal of again. Yeah. No, Baldwin was amazing. And he was part of a clique of people that Stuart picked up as his section editors that I think sort of to frame these guys, they were the the spearhead of this movement for ecological design. And and Stuart tapped into that. And those guys really uh, sort of solidified the, the impact of the whole catalog in that way. Very interesting. He eventually did find someone to pass on much of the responsibility to and Kevin Kelly, another very interesting guy. Well, yeah, there were um, Kevin ultimately became an editor. You know, it was reinvented as the Coevolution Quarterly, but then they realized that they could uh, keep the Coevolution Quarterly alive by occasionally producing a version of the the Holder's catalog. The the mistake came when they tried to produce the Holder's software catalog, and that just didn't resonate with it. I can tell you personal experience about that. 1985, 84, 85, something like that when it came out. I was a tech entrepreneur, had my second startup. We were a hardcore PC networking technology company. And I remember being quite excited to get my hands on the whole earth software catalog. I started reading through it. I went, what the fuck? This thing's totally out of date. Because in those days, you had to read the weeklies to really glean what was new and important. I always read PC Week. And of course... Byte and you know, all the other bazillion of them. It was like, huh? What the hell is this? That was a mismatch between content and format. Yeah, it was his greatest uh, commercial failure. Yeah, it was it was unfortunate in timing and everything else uh, just didn't work. But around that time, they did something else extremely interesting. The well. Well, 1985, um, Stuart had actually, you know. <laughs> Over and over again, I saw that ideas would bubble for a really long time. And the well was one of those ideas that he actually had in 68 um, from looking at Doug Engelbart's work uh, at Augment. uh, And he came up with this idea. I can't even remember what what it stood for. But in his notebook, you can see the proposal for something he called EIEIO. It sat dormant for almost a decade. He comes up with the idea of the well. you know, there was there was a lot of online stuff going on, and he tapped into a hacker community and a music community. The, the Deadheads adopted the well. And, you know, I think the well had a bit of out-of-scale impact because he did one brilliant thing as a marketing guy. He invited people like me and Stephen Levy and other technology writers uh, to the well and gave us free accounts. And so we hung out there and we wrote about it. And so as a result, the well got an out-of-scale Reputation. There were never more than 14,000 users of the well, which on the scale of things, when you compare it to CompuServe or the source or Prodigy, was pretty much uh, mouse nuts. Yep. I actually started my tech career at the source. I went to work for the source in 1980, right? And I ended up becoming a member of the well in 1989. I was tipped to it by Mitch Kapor, a guy that company Lotus did one, two, three. That was their claim to payment time was pitching him on a product that we'd created for one of my companies, which he bought. And he said, oh, there's this new thing I've become a member. I've got to check it out called The Well. So I went and joined up. And I've been a Well member ever since. In fact, I'm even one of the member owners. A dozen of us came and bought The Well from Salon when they were going to close it down. Oh, that's cool. Well, so, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts as a biographer, um, this is the crossing over from the print world to the digital world. Um, and the challenges of being a biographer, the whale lost a couple of years of their backup tapes and all of Stewart's mail because that's where he was doing his, his email. And so that's never going to come back. And it just 
drives me crazy. There's supposed to be an archiving way for the conferences, but it's not been rigorously followed. I've said more than once, come on, guys, you got to preserve this shit. Graduate students of the future are being deprived, right? And biographers, too. That's right. And it's quite interesting. I actually made an offer to buy the well in 1992. That was near the peak of the well, probably right near the peak. It wasn't. It was a year after Stuart walked away. That's so interesting. Yeah, I remember that famous shit fest, and you quoted little bits of it. It was actually way worse than what you quoted. And the well still had tremendous potential. It was on its way up, but they had no idea how to scale it. And by that point, I had built and sold three startups, and I was quasi-retired at the ripe old age of 38 or something. And I said, you know what? This thing could be the basis for the next big thing. And I tracked down Netty, who was the software provider, and it was in bankruptcy, and they owned 50% of the well. And I cut a deal with the bankruptcy liquidator who was selling off the minimal assets of Netty. Amazingly, I got them to agree to sell me their 50% of the well for three installments, one per year of $50,000. What a deal. Did you go ahead with that deal? No. Here's why. I said, I'll, I will do it, but you know, give me 60 days to convince Point Foundation to sell me their half. And so I reached out to Point Foundation through the people that were managing the well and very annoying, very opaque process. They basically just came back and said, no. And I said, okay, well, and I would have paid them 150 cash, which was more than it was worth on a cash flow basis, but I could see the potential. So I came back and said, all right, assuming we had a discussion and a meeting of the minds, I'd be willing to pay as, you know, in my own mind, $100,000 for 1%. One thing I was not going to do is to get into a for-profit business with a not-for-profit as an equal blocking partner. And that was my reply to point. Didn't put a number on the table. I said, I'd pay you a significant sum for 1%. You can have two seats on the board and I will appoint three. And they came back and just said, no, you know, no dialogue, nothing. I said, okay, fuck you. And went on to do other things and went on to have a very interesting career thereafter. But I have always wondered, again, contingency, what would have happened if they'd said yes? Because I had the expertise, the ability to raise large sums of money and knew lots and lots of talented people in all aspects of online businesses. Could the well have become you know, one of the premier companies of the early internet? I think the answer is it maybe could have. It would have been fun if we'd given it a shot. Instead, it just kind of through all kinds of weird and strange I wouldn't call it incompetent management, but it was just caretaker management. There was never any entrepreneurial management of the well. There was a point that they wanted to franchise the well, and the board turned that idea down. Yep. And then people built clones of the well using software clones of PicoSpan called Yap. There was one in Austin, Texas, and there was one in I think Chicago. Anyway, it was interesting. But being on the well was hugely important in my career. Here I was, 92. I had another little startup, which I sold. That was a one-man band, specifically designed to be a personal coin collection agency, as I called it. And it was quite successful. I sold that and got sucked into being a corporate executive thereafter. And I kind of just went an entirely different direction. But I remained a member of the well, and it turned out it was hugely valuable. In this early days of the internet, no one really knew what it was, right? And just like the old joke, Two hikers on the trail, the bear shows up and the first hiker starts putting on his running shoes. Second one says, you can't outrun a bear. And he says, 
yeah, I don't care about run, outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you, right? And so being on the well kept me six months ahead of other people about what was actually happening on the internet. And this was the days of the EFF, which was founded on the well, as you pointed out. And truthfully, a good part of the work for Wired was incubated on the well, et cetera. Craig Newmark was on the well, et cetera, et cetera. And so you know, here I was, you know, being a tech exec at a big multinational publishing company. And unlike most of my clueless peers, you know, I actually was getting the straight shit from the people on the well. And it really helped me take off in my career as a you know, tech exec in a multinational publishing company. So I did not regret, you know, in some sense, not buying the well and instead just using it as a career accelerator. That's great. That's a great bit of history. Really was kind of fun. Really was. So let's go on to the next topic, which is Stuart's interesting and quite fundamental position, but controversial these days in the environmental movement. Absolutely. So Stuart sort of laid, I mean, we're going to jump to his book, An Ecopragma's Manifesto in 2007. You know, he increasingly found himself estranged from the environmental movement, which was, you know, there were significant parts of the environmental movement that were anti-technological for obvious reasons. And Stuart maintained his pro-technology stance. And he wrote a book that uh, basically looked at uh, GMO food, looked at nuclear power, looked at dense urban cities, and looked at geoengineering and endorsed all of them as ways forward toward alternative green future. And he, he really, he split with some of his closest friends over this, Amory Levin's particular in, in terms of nuclear power, and he had a, a huge falling out. And Stuart's still bitter about Amory at this point. Amory went after him for his pro-nuclear position. And Stuart had been what he referred to as mildly anti-nuclear and then Peter Schwartz, who had been at the Stanford Research Institute, SRI, and then went to Shell Oil and came back. And Peter wrote the first sort of endorsement of uh, nuclear power technology as a sort of bridge across the chasm to get away from uh, fossil fuels. And, and Stuart uh, came to basically believe that the, the storage problem, the nuclear waste storage problem, was not as significant as the Greens thought it was. And so he shifted ground. And you know, shortly after he shifted, He'd written a piece about this, and uh, he ended up on the fr in a front page article in the New York Times as one of these former anti-nuclear people who had switched their position. Yeah, that was quite interesting, and you know, I respect him for that actually, for being willing to be analytical and sensible, and again, not resonate with the tribe. Because as you, as you point out, I've always called them the hippies in the mud hut contingent, right? Think that that's how we're going to do it. It ain't going to happen, people. Stuart knows what he's talking about in this regard. And I don't know if I've read one of his essays or, I, unfortunately, I never read the book where he lays all this out. I have to go do that. But he essentially described the transition as an engineering problem. It's a bit more than that. It's also a socioeconomic problem, but it's significantly engineering problem. And as we used to say in business, you can wish in one hand and shit in the other, and I'll tell you which one will fill up first, right? And you know, making the transition to you know carbon neutrality without some base load mechanism like nuclear is going to be damn hard. It's going to be damn hard even with nuclear. There's a whole bunch of issues, and particularly the low energy on energy return of most of the alternatives. Now, of course, this could all be trumped by techno magic. You know, maybe fusion will suddenly happen. Maybe. I wouldn't hold your breath, but it could happen. Or deep, hot rock geothermal. I know people working on that. That could work. But if you want to bet on things that we know will work, fission ought to be a significant part of the plan. Though, again, if you take the engineering mindset, if they can get the price to work, right? Because it's essentially a race between nuclear and batteries. 
And I happen to know, for odd reasons, a shitload about electrochemistry and battery technology. And it's going to be a horse race. Battery technology does not improve at the rate of electronics, quite the contrary. It creeps forward. And there's some very promising, interesting new electrochemical technologies that people are working, but it's the big bottleneck. And to just rule nuclear out, it seems to me just absurd in principle if you actually care about getting to carbon neutrality. And I was very, very, very happy when I, I did read the essay that Stuart wrote. I don't remember where it was. Famous essay. Was it in the New Yorker, maybe someplace? It might have been an MIT uh, tech review, I think. Oh, tech review. That's where it was. I read it because I'm an MIT grad. I get the tech review, right? I remember that's where I read it. I go, holy shit, that goddamn hippie brand has come out for nuclear power. Good. <laughs> well, the other thing uh, that you can see, he didn't really hammer it in his uh, Ecopragmist Manifesto, but clearly he's not at this point and wasn't then a neoliberal. You need a strong government to get there, is what he said. And that's why, you know, when you try to figure out where to put Stuart politically, the closest person I can politically align him with is Jerry Brown. Yeah. And you mentioned that he, that one of the big changes in him was when, you know, from his Ayn Rand influenced libertarianism, he worked as an advisor to Brown and he saw that, you know, government does have some important levers and it indeed does. And that, you know, without those levers, a lot of things just ain't going to happen or ain't going to happen fast. I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a moment. Any of you government people out there, and I know some of you are listening because I, I just know. Carbon tax, motherfuckers, right? If you would put a carbon tax that starts at $50 a ton and rises to $300 a ton over the next 20 years, rebate it to the consumers per capita, it will change everything. Game over. We will solve carbon. Without that, with all these idiot Green New Deal bullcraps and this and that, I mean, yeah, maybe we'll get there, but this one thing would do it. It's in your power to do it, but you're wimps, you're pussies, you won't do it. So do that. And I suspect Stuart would agree with that. He might well. <laughs> I'll ask him. I'm going to email him after this and ask him what he thinks about that. But there's an example of there, there's a government lever, a simple one, that if they could have the intestinal fortitude to push it forward, would so bring forth entrepreneurial spirit and capital that we'd crush this transition to nuclear probably ahead of schedule. No, there are a lot of things on the horizon. I haven't given up on fusion yet. I'm continuing to be intrigued, although everybody says it's the energy source of the future and always will be. Um, I, I think I've seen a lot of interesting stuff in the last year or two. Yeah, certainly, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the private sector, finally. But, you know, it's a big science problem. Uh, I've looked at them a little bit more carefully, and I, I still say, okay, a little positive gradient, but still a long-ass way to go, right? And there's all kinds of other problems, but material science problems, for instance. You know, the neutron fluxes that come off of fusion reactions are unbelievably dense and degrade material structures very rapidly. So what's the actual useful life of the containers that you put these things in? Not a solved problem, right? People defer that one until we get to positive energy breakthrough. But if you don't solve that one, you don't got a, a viable nuclear energy industry. There's a Japanese company that has an interesting approach to that question. I just spoke with them. So, you know, there's some interesting stuff there, too. That's very interesting. So, Stuart, you know, for my money, is right on the number, which is to be a pragmatist and have an engineering mindset. Does it pencil out, right? Does it pencil out? Does your roadmap to zero carbon before we melt the planet, does it work, right? Can you make it happen? 
you know, one of my other pet peeves, I was a Bernie supporter in 2016. I actually worked for the Bernie campaign in 2016. And we carried our two counties, God damn it, in the primary against a Hillary landslide in the state of Virginia. But in 2020, I had to drop the guy like a hot potato when he put in his platform just utter stupidity. I mean, you know, does someone like this even have advisors? And his right in his platform, he said, you'll love this as someone who obviously knows about these things. You know, I promise that by 2030, that's three zero, not six zero, we will achieve 100% renewables in the transportation and the electricity generation sector. I then talked to one of my experts and said, maybe if he was Stalin and my expert said, nope, Stalin couldn't have done it. The only one that could do it's Pol Pot. Kill off a third of the population and cut the per capita GDP by 80% for the rest of them. <laughs> oh, I wish he were true. Uh, that would be great. But I guess my point is that this stuff has to pencil out. When you read something like that, it's just ludicrous on its face if you know anything about it. And Stewart's been a very important voice in saying this is an engineering problem. It's a real problem, an engineering, economic, political, social problem. But it has to work. And, you know, wishful thinking ain't going to do it. And I can really respect him again. Stepping away from his tribal resonances and not caring that some people he cares about denounced him and saying what's right. Damn good thing. A classic Stuart brand. Well, we're getting late in the story here. There's also many things we could talk about. Let's talk briefly about, to my mind, it's kind of a surprising turn in his later career, which was the Global Business Network. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Peter Schwartz decided to leave Shell, decided to come back to America set up a business consulting firm called the Global Business Network, was based on these ideas of scenario planning that Schwartz had had been involved with at Shell and originally at SRI. And this was actually good and bad for Stuart, I felt. You know, it was, Stuart never really took a full-time gig there. Uh, He became the curator of their book club and he would uh, provide two books every month to their members. And he would, he was sort of trotted out as sort of a grand old man figure for the, for them, but he never took a line job as a consultant at GBN. And it, it gave him the freedom to work on, on his book on architecture, How Buildings Learn, and the book of uh, which he's most proud. And, and, and it also gave him a 401k for the first time. It gave him some financial security. But, uh, you know, uh, there is that that line on the back page of The Last Hole of Catalog, Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish. Uh, he wasn't quite as hungry during that period. He had a more comfortable situation. He was happily remarried to Ryan Phelan. Um, he was sort of in, in, in midlife. And uh, you know, G- GBN was a, sort of a, a departure from many of the things he'd done over a long period of time. Yeah, I got to know Peter Schwartz when he was on the board of the Santa Fe Institute when I was on the board there. And, and he was an interesting character. And particularly, he wrote a very famous work called The Art of the Long View. Art of the long view, yeah. Particularly bad timing. They had this notion about the long boom um, that was published just at the moment of the dot-com crash, and that actually affected the fortunes of, of GBN. You know, the Global Business Network did not. It, it rose and fell with the dot-com era, um, and it, it fell into the arms of another consulting firm and, and was absorbed. Um, so, and, you know, yeah, Peter... Peter's now he's at Salesforce. He's sort of a, a strategist there. Um, and so he, he landed well. Anyway, let's go to the last section, then we'll exit after a little wrap up. Is for quite a while, last time I talked to Stuart, chatted with him for about an hour at his office, 
He's involved with the Long Now Foundation. And this seeming to me like, what the hell? Dream to build this clock that you can run for 10,000 years. Why don't you tell that story? And why do you think he's interested in this? Well, so this was the idea of a friend of Stuart's, Danny Hillis, a pioneer in massively parallel computing, the sort of the proto uh, design of the, of the cloud. Um, Danny uh, was an early AI researcher. And he became more and more concerned during the dot-com era that society as a whole was more and more short-term in its thinking. And he really uh, felt you needed some kind of forcing function to get people to think long-term. And he came up with this idea of a clock. And he sent out this email to a bunch of his friends. And he took some reporters like me on long walks to describe this idea. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But Stuart came back to him. He's the one person who responded positively. This is the early 1990s. He said, well, you know, if you're going to build a clock, you need to design a library. Stuart had been thinking about the design of libraries for some time, and this sort of resonated. And the two of them started on this idea and kept the, the idea alive, built an organization that, once again, Stuart likes to create institutions. And this, this was one that he got to design from scratch with Danny. And ultimately, they, they built some clock prototypes. And ultimately, uh, Jeff Bezos liked the idea, and then the world's richest man. And he basically footed the bill to build a full-scale clock in a mountain on the south end of his spaceport in western Texas, the middle of nowhere. And it is almost finished. It will be one of the uh, wonders of the world when it's finished. Uh, it's really a remarkable structure. It's been criticized uh, widely uh, by some who feel like it's a waste of money. You know, Stuart's held fast to the idea. The Long Now as an organization is a wonderful organization. It has the best bar, I would argue, in San Francisco. It's, it's in a national park. That's, I love that idea of a bar in a national park. The Interval, which is next door to Greens, uh, they had, you know, up until COVID, they were having regular talks at the Interval. They still have uh, regular events in San Francisco. It's this nice forum. Yeah, I've been to that bar. Yeah, it is right next to Greens out there at Fort Mason. I've been in that bar. That's right. <laughs> they got a good collection of whiskey there, actually. And they have these events. They have a robot on the wall. They have clock model, and, and they have. It's just a fascinating place, and it's, it's a nice place to hang out too. Um, anyway, we'll see if uh, he's built an organization that can sustain itself, you know, for the 10,000 years that it's going to need to be there to support the clock. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, they're just going through their sort of first change in leadership now. And so it's an interesting design problem that he spent a lot of time on. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I and mean, again, uh, he talked to me about it quite passionately. And I said, well, sort of interesting, but unlike many other things he did, I could not imagine myself ever you know, deciding to take on that mission. But hey, at that stage of your life, it means 84 years old, you know, do what you want, dudes. Like, you know, my dear aunt, when she was 90 something, her daughter tried to cut off her two shots of scotch per night. And my brother who lived nearby would every couple of weeks smuggle her in a bottle. And, uh, you know, our family view is Aunt Ruth's 90 years old, but goddamn if she wants two shots of scotch, let her have two shots of scotch. <laughs> so it's my take on the long now with respect to Stuart. It's interesting. So anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. You know, I'm really glad I read the book. I knew a bit of, I knew about Stuart and the whole earth and the well, and I knew a little bit about the long now, but you filled in so many other amazingly interesting details. And what a life, what a life he led. Yeah, and it's not over. You know, he's working on another book. Uh, he, uh, you know, what seems like it might be a boring subject, uh, the, the history of maintenance and its importance for civilization. Uh, and he's hard at work at it and really enjoying himself. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, the only book of his I read was How Buildings Learn. That was a brilliant book. 
that was a really good book. And one could imagine a book on maintenance and its importance of having that same kind of, you know, off spin that's nonetheless quite a great work. Or it could be boring and it could suck. We'll see. <laughs> the first chapter, which is on sailboats racing around the world, is quite good. And it's out there for people to look, to look at and read if they want. Very cool. I want to thank John Markoff for coming on The Jim Rutt Show and talking about his relatively new book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Grant. Thanks, Jim. This was fun. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.